So welcome to PhD Divas. We are a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities, and I'm recording at the University of British Columbia, which is on the ancestral, traditional, and unseceded territory of the Musqueam people. And with me today, I have a very special, wonderful guest from my time at UBC, Anne Simpson, who was the writer in residence at Green College UBC, which is a community of graduate students, postdocs, and visiting scholars from every discipline. Not last semester, we had Anne as our writer in residence. I believe this is, they've just revived the writer in residence program after it's lain dormant for a number of years, and they boasted among previous writers in residence, wonderful writers such as Neil Hopkinson, and it was wonderful that we had Anne to uh, reinvigorate the program. Anne has published seven books of poetry, novels, and essays. She has won numerous prizes, such as the Griffin Poetry Prize, the Atlantic Poetry Prize, and we had the pleasure of having her living with us in our community for a whole semester with her, her husband, Paul, as well, organizing panels, doing poetry workshops with us, writing workshops, and it just really enriched the intellectual atmosphere. I've always liked poetry, but I haven't actually sought it out. I, I covered poetry in grade school and a little bit uh, in university, but I was never one to buy books of poetry or spend a lot of time reading poems, even though when I encountered poems, I often found the experience to be very enjoyable. So there's this one poem that I really like that I studied in high school called As I Walked Out One Evening by W.H. Auden and it just highlights to me how poetry can really draw you into someone else's experience and allow you to feel the emotions and see the things that they saw at, at some point in time. My name is Wes Yoakum and I'm a law student at the Peter Aillard School of Law uh, in my second year. Hello, my name is Tiara Kerr and I'm a master's student studying economics here at the University of British Columbia, uh, and of course, poetry. And how does it relate to my field of study? This actually ties into um, my original meeting with Anne Simpson uh, because she found out that I was a uh, in-law and a future lawyer and she was intrigued by how um, poetry relates to my field of study. And so we had a, a nice conversation over dinner where we talked about all the different ways that those two circles intersect, the Venn diagram. Uh, and one point was that uh, they're both areas that communicate their essence through language. So they're both constructed by language. Um, they both provide insight and understanding to the human condition in different ways, provide order and structure to the chaos that surrounds us. And um, they both engage questions of meaning, ultimately. Uh, they're providing insight and understanding into the human condition. And so there really is a lot that they have in common. Uh, there's some differences, of course. Poetry is more of a, more of a, a creative exercise where law is, you know, if you're a creative lawyer, that's usually a bad thing. <laughs> it's bad for your client. <laughs> but nonetheless, law engages in abstract reasoning and poetry also engages in abstract concepts, and there's a fair amount of ambiguity in both. Economics um, is a study that requires you to remove yourself 
from your opinions or try and take yourself out of the equation. So even though you're answering these big world ideas, it tries to take away your personal experience and instead look at the aggregate, look at the overall data. So poetry is very different to me because it specifically puts you in uh, your, your analysis or it's forcing you to uh, express your view of the world rather than just this general arm's length view of the world. Uh, first of all, Anne was very welcoming and she made it uh, a very safe place for everyone in the workshop um, to practice their own uh, poetry writing skills. And she had a very structured approach to the workshop where she would uh, uh, have a list of uh, four or five poems, which she would read to us. And she has a wonderful reading voice. She, she really makes a poem come alive when she reads it. And we would then share the results of our work um, in 10 or 15 minute exercises. And everyone was encouraged to share. And it really gave us a chance to see that we too could write poetry if we wanted to. I ended up creating a whole bunch of different poems. Uh, one of my favorite was from a particular workshop involving fairy tales. And uh, the assignment was to write, to retell a fairy tale from the point of view of the different characters involved, and I chose the Three Little Pigs. Um, the uh, the fairy tale involving uh, the big bad wolf coming and blowing down the pig's houses until he gets to the one that's constructed of brick and he can't blow it down. First of all, master's degrees, especially one-year master's programs, are extremely challenging, and so it provided a really good creative break that engaged my brain in a completely different way than my studies. It was especially a very math-heavy semester uh, last semester, and so it was really awesome to be able to meet with these very creative people and, and engage my brain in a different way. Um, I also feel like I really connected with a lot of the people here at, at Green College uh, in those workshops in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise. Um, when you're writing poetry, you have to kind of bare your soul in a way, and it was really cool to get to know people in a different sort of light. But my favorite one that we did here in the workshop was one where we were talking about food, and there were a lot of really good food poems, but I, I ended up writing a poem about an experience baking this cake uh, with my father that his mother used to make and I never met his mother because uh, she died before before I was born but it was just a really cool experience to write a poem that kind of broke down and almost allowed me to process that experience in a in a way that I probably wouldn't have otherwise and so I'm really happy to have her as a guest on the show today to talk to her about poetry but also why poetry matters to everyone so thanks for joining us today Anne oh thanks it's great to be here uh, so, and how about, um, in your own words, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm uh, more or less a full-time writer now, and I uh, used to work at St. Francis Xavier University here in Antigonish, and I've um, decided that uh, full-time writing is really what I want to be doing. So that that's what I've done, and from time to time I do residencies like the one at Green College, which I did last fall, and that was so invigorating because I was with the uh, I was with the students so much, and I was there with my partner Paul, and so it was great on on so many different levels, very uh, stimulating to be around students. How about we start with um, talking about the the series of panels that you organized throughout the semester, which was on the theme of um, can the arts help us die well? And this was, I think you organized, was it th at least three events 
of different interdisciplinary panels of doctors, of poets, writers, talking about the subject. So what drew you to this particular theme, and how did you arrange and organize the different voices that you brought together, and perhaps are there particular things that um, you really enjoyed that came out of it? So I had been accompanying somebody who had been dying uh, the year before I went to Green College. And he was a photographer. And it was not just that accompaniment, um, you know, taking him to appointments and being there when he when he got blood transfusions and that sort of thing. It was more um, how can we uh, help people? How can we support people so that they are they are creative in their last months if they're, you know, given that amount of time to live? Some people pass away really quickly. And so it's not, it's impossible to, to do something uh, that's creative. And in John's case, he really flourished and uh, he spent a lot of time thinking about an exhibit that was yet to happen, and I was collaborating with him on that. So that gave me the idea that uh, we can be thinking much more deeply, much more richly about how the arts can help us die well. And instead of um, passing out of this world without leaving a legacy behind, maybe there's time for some kind of legacy to be left. And and so what would that look like? And so I asked Dr. Pippa Hawley, who's a palliative care doctor, who herself is an artist. Um, and I asked uh, Gretchen Ladd, who's an arts therapist, who's worked with many people who've been dying. And I also asked... Um, um, oh, her name's going to escape me just at the moment. She's a writer who comes from uh, Victoria. And um, she uh, she has such a special vision because she worked at a hospice in Victoria for many years before writing her book in The Slender Margin. And so, uh, so that panel was extraordinary because we were able to talk about it you know, I was able to ask them questions, but also the students, many of whom were medical students, were really interested in this subject. I think it touches on a nerve, to tell you the truth. I think mm -hmm. that a lot yeah. of us are interested in this subject. Definitely. I have to say that it personally helped me because near the beginning of the semester, I lost my last grandparents. And so being mm -hmm. able to attend which panels I could felt therapeutic, uh, to say the least. Uh, thanks. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. Um, I think it's also interesting because I think that the phrase the good life or the art of living well is one that's so much more, um, of course, uh, widely available. And now we have this whole culture of, say, wellness and so forth. But like thinking about dying well is something that um, I think our culture is still trying to to grapple with and, and figure out. So this has been incredibly important work. I think so. I think, you know, palliative care has always been kind of in the background and people haven't thought too much about it. Now they're thinking about it. And so you mentioned that it seemed like the medical students were particularly interested. Did you get to hear from them at all about like what do you feel like poetry or the, the work in general you're able to do gave them that isn't currently available in their programs? 
I think that they crave that, to tell you the truth. I think that they're really interested in this sort of conversation. So I think that medical training is really great nowadays, you know, but they're looking at the what makes them human beings in the midst of that. And I think this was one of the ways that, you know, you could sort of see the richness of the conversation and the depths to which it was going and just how it could broaden a vision for them and help them with their questions. So a lot of them had questions that afternoon and it was really um, it was really wonderful to see how the the question period, you know, it, it nothing lapsed there. You know, it was it just people were really very keen. And speaking of this sort of craving, this interdisciplinary desire for poetry. So uh, Anne organized um, a series of pretty much weekly writing workshops for us that drew people from every discipline, from, say, physics, from music performance, from law, from uh, urban planning. And actually, after she, she left at the end of the semester, she even, um, out of the generosity of her heart, continued to send us workshop materials that we were able to run on our own, that we met every fortnight to continue. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the experience of organizing those workshops. In particular, uh, this question was from Tiara. She's wondering if you altered your usual approach to leading workshops for a group of people from all disciplines. Oh, you know, uh, it's it was really fun to do that. So that was the first thing about it is that I find that kind of informal teaching to be a whole lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So yes, it did change, you know, just a little bit because not everybody had background in poetry and not everybody had read poetry. So uh, so I had to look at it in a different way. It's true. But um, but I know that you know, if you have a passion for something and you sit down with other people and they sort of have an interest, they're kind of keen, or they might even have a passion for it. Suddenly when they're exploring that, all kinds of good things come out. So that's really what I noticed was that you put things down in front of people, like putting food on a table and you kind of gather them and you say, let's, let's eat. But let's just have the banquet here. And really, that's what happened, I think. That's such a that's a great metaphor, I think, especially so she Anne actually organized two workshop sessions with us on food. But it does sort of ended up feeling sort of like a creative and intellectual smorgasbord or potluck in some ways, because, of course, she prepared the, the space <laughs> for us and hosted and then we had like an hour to go through all these different exercises uh, and sort of uh, become vulnerable with each other and share and delight in, in yeah, the work of that's words. really what it was. You know, it does change when when you have people who are from different disciplines. But actually, I think people just really want a chance to play. And poetry can be such great play. It's serious play, but it's still play. I remember one uh, that we did together. I can't remember all of them, but I remember one that we did. And I had asked people to work on a guzzle, which is a Persian uh, form of a poem. And so it has specific rules to it. But what we did was we made a communal guzzle. And Zion, you were involved in that. Yes. <laughs> I, 
Yeah. And so what was so much fun about that was the the kind of serendipitous thing that occurred. You know, uh, somebody would write a line, somebody else would follow. And and we got the whole, I think the whole group was participating in that. And so you get a real sense of everybody's ideas and how they come together to make a poem. It was, you know, we could have polished it, I'm sure. But but nevertheless, it was so interesting to see how it cohered. Mm-hmm. Didn't you find that? Oh, definitely. So a little bit of background for people. I believe that we all composed two separate couplets. Um, and I yeah, think you gave us a particular right. theme. And then what was really fascinating is that we had written all of our couplets on pieces of paper. And then Anne was like, and now you have to come together and try to figure out how you're going to assemble this. And so I think there was like maybe... 10 people in the room and we're like, oh my goodness, now we have such disparate uh, little little couplets that we were going to put together. And it was this whole fascinating thing where we're all laying them out and trying to figure out what was the, the hidden logic behind the, uh, this work that we'd done in the same room, but entirely separately. And then we actually did manage, I think, to sort of construct a narrative of the unfolding of this poem in the end. <laughs> were there things that you found surprising that came out of the sessions? For a long time, you know, teaching, I loved teaching in formal settings. So I used to teach, uh, as I said, at St. Effex University. And I teach always, it would be first year English or second year English. And, uh, and I didn't get into it in the same way that I did later when I was teaching creative writing and doing much more of a workshop kind of thing. And that's when I realized, oh, I love the whole what happens in a workshop. I love that. It's it's like people discover things for themselves. They find out, I'm not bad at this. I can do it. And and then you see the 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 kind of um the antenna going up, you know, oh, I can write. I really can write. Mm-hmm. I can I can do something with this. So that's the pleasure of it for me, I think. I completely agree. There's something about the best type of teaching, which is actually a, a type of learning for the, t- the teacher, which is like the, the hidden <laughs> thing that we're actually getting a benefit out of it. It seemed to me that part of what you did so wonderfully in the workshops was trying to make us understand all the different places we can get inspiration externally and internally. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that, uh, my gosh, I, you know, when I think about this question, I I remember a writer coming to St. Effex and doing a reading, and one of the students saying, um, does the muse visit you? Mm -hmm. And it was such a funny question. Um, And he said, uh, the writer, Don Demansky said, well, in fact, um, I I used to have a landlady, and her name was Mrs. Muse, and this was in Halifax. (laughs) And... And he, he said, so it wasn't that the muse visited me, but I visited the muse. <laughs> so I like that idea, just making such fun out of it. You know, I think that we get inspired by almost everything that comes our way. It's it's a question of, um, to some extent, selecting um, some of the, in a way, if, you've, if you're at all creative, you can get bombarded with a lot of different things at once. And so for me, it's like, is this a good idea? Um, this particular idea, does it 
uh, is it going to hold? And so I stay with an idea for a long time now and I see whether or not it has, it has, uh, well, legs, you know, it's, um, so I might be thinking about doing a series of poems about the brain and I might think about that idea for a long time, but I need another way in that's kind of, um, uh, my own particular avenue, I guess you could say. So I usually need more than one thing to work with. Uh, for instance, it might be, uh, I've been thinking about the brain, poems about the brain. So I'll be thinking about that. And then I'll be thinking about, say, a neighbor who has Alzheimer's. And somehow or other, the fact that I've been thinking about the brain and thinking about Alzheimer's, these things come together, the impersonal comes together with the personal. And it's very often a cluster of things for me um, working at the same time. So I need to have not just one idea, but two, sometimes three. Um, and sometimes there's music involved, sometimes art is involved. Uh, but I like that convergence of ideas. And that for me usually will produce good poet, better poetry than I might have if I only had, you know, a little idea and it didn't really have much going for it. I was just thinking that, of course, uh, one of the workshops that you structured for us was that we went to the Belkin Art Gallery when there was an exhibit of the artwork by, I think, one of the pioneering, pioneering neurologists and the way that his diagrams uh, ended up being its own sort of art. And the way that you'd structured that workshop was that first, like, we had to walk around and look at all the different uh, pieces that were posted and read the descriptions. And then we had to choose one and write about it. And then like the next stage I think you had was like after you, we had to like describe the particular diagrams of, of the brain that he did, um, how we I think had to relate a personal experience or perhaps mm. like what sort of landscapes we saw in it. And so there's this really sort of unfolding process of the way that you guided us through that particular workshop. That was the work of uh, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, I think. The, in fact, I have the book right here oh, beside really? me. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so stunning. Those drawings were so stunning. And it is really wonderful to do a, a workshop with people in the gallery, you know, where they can actually see the work and they can go around and kind of, it's much more um, affecting, I think. It touches people uh, in, a, in a way that is much stronger than if you sort of leaf through a book. But the other thing was, I thought, the, the idea of memory, I was thinking, I wonder what people will get from, you know, if they can remember something and if they're looking at the same time at, say, the hippocampus mm -hmm. and what will they gain, you know, what, what sort of poem will come out of that. So it was fascinating to hear the poems that came out of that workshop. And it seemed like a very fitting se session to have an introductory workshop, of course, because we here we have a scientist who ended up doing these drawings, but um, there was a type of artistry to them. And I think that's something I hear from a lot of my science friends is that when they're doing the sort of imaging work of their day to day, they could still be struck by the beauty or the aesthetics of the particular imaging that they're doing. Um, but perhaps that oh, they, yeah, yeah it, even though they're recognizing it, um, the the beauty of what they're doing being validated is sort of another thing. That's right. And it, it is interesting, isn't it, that uh, Ram Santiago Ramon y Cajal had wanted to be an artist and then, you know, his family would have none of it. And so he found himself uh, 
working as a as a doctor as a scientist and yet his artistry came out and so it's a beautiful blending of the of disciplines you're you're so right and and it's too bad that we get that sort of um uh, scoured out of us as we go along that we can't kind of hold these different things within us you know that we can we not be scientists and poets at the same time can we not be artists and poets and you know palliative care doctors at the mm-hmm. same time definitely yeah so shifting back to your work uh, you've written across so many different genres I was wondering do you, fi- uh, do you find your processes change a lot uh, when you've been shifting between essays versus fiction versus poems? Yeah, how have you approached this different, those different types of writing? So uh, I, w- I once read an interview with Anne Carson, and Anne Carson said in that particular interview that she had three projects going at the same time, uh, and they were all on different tables. And I thought, well, I wonder if she has a laptop set up on each of those tables or how it works. <laughs> Must be a big room. <laughs> anyway, yeah, a big room. Um, I can usually only work on one project at a time. So right now I'm working on essays. But what I really wanted to think about was, okay, so how does um, poetry come into that? So I'm doing poems as part of the essays, and they sort of follow on the their respective essay, you know, the essay they're connected to. Um, sometimes they're sort of embedded within it but most often I find I have to go back and forth it's really interesting to explore how you can make a hybrid piece of work you know and and how to be successful at it so I'm still really learning um but I would say that's my interest right at the moment is uh what's what's the correlation between these things prose and poetics and uh and I'm also, of course, always thinking of fiction, but not writing fiction at the same time. So I can usually write poetry, and a long time is spent on poetry, and then I'll shift over to something else. Um, but fiction, I need a lot of time. So it it takes me years to to write a novel, and sometimes I just get tired, and I'll move over to poetry, mm. I have to say. <laughs> yeah. So... You've also built up such a substantial body of work. I was wondering that when you're asked to do readings, how do you how do you even select from all the many things that you've written what you'd like to read? And do you also find that there's been perennial things that you continually um, want to continue to uh, read for the public, even though uh, it's been a couple books ago? Like, which are the also like which are the pieces you keep on coming back to when people ask you to read? So if you write over a long period of time, you begin to notice your obsessions. You don't really know when you're starting to write what exactly you're aiming for. In fact, you don't even know what another writer called the secret heart of a book. You don't even know exactly what that secret heart of the current book that you're writing Mm -hmm. is. You know, you sort of, it's only after, say, years of reading from it that, and this isn't very often, mind you, that you read from it, but it might strike you, oh, I guess, I guess that was a time of, you know, elation, or I guess that was a time of discovery. So there's that that you find out much later. But the other thing that's interesting, and this might not be the answer you were thinking I would give, um, but what I find is that as I go along, I'm really interested in uh, how we think 
And this comes up in a variety of ways. In fiction, it comes up. So in Falling, I had written about an artist, a young guy who's an artist. And at a certain point in the novel, he kind of snaps. And so his thinking changes in this period of crisis. His thinking changes, but also the language changes in that novel, which is called Falling. And um, and I realized that uh, I'm very interested in psychological states. So the state of mind that somebody is in, a character uh, is in because of crisis, um, that's a real challenge because it also affects language. And then I realized that in my poetry, I'm interested in that as well. So um, I was saying that I wrote some poems about uh, a neighbor who has Alzheimer's and I was trying to consider what that would be like and I realized there would be a falling away of language. So how would that be represented then in poetry? So that has become uh, a real um, uh, path of investigation, I guess you could say. And it's interesting because we were talking earlier about science and art and those connections. And I realized that I depend a lot on science, though it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I'm really gravitating towards, oh, what, what is that? I must discover what that's all about because it will help me in my writing or psychology will help me in my writing or, so I think you get a sense of where I'm going with this. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of lovely to hear that, like there's a, people draw from your work that you yourself find like new things within it. Like there's something serendipitous even for the creator. Yeah. It's so you realize that you, this is your path of investigation actually, that in fact you are interested in psychology. You are interested in how the brain works, you you know, and that it's been ongoing for a very long time. And so when you are exploring characters, it's not like you're thinking to yourself, oh, I must explore such and such because that will show me. It's never like that, of course. And it's never like that in real life. Why are we drawn to somebody? It's because, you know, there's something about them that's attractive or, you know, something about them that uh, we connect with. Um, But it might be the same, you know, in the sense of a novel. Why am I drawn to this particular character? It must be because I'm interested in that path of investigation you know it's it's not only that you're interested in story it's not only that you're interested in plot it's that you're interested in people and and how um how society works what the injustices are uh for those particular characters the moral problems that have to be worked out so uh fiction is a very social uh, sort of genre, whereas poetry is, um, it might not be so social, it might not depend upon a narrative. And it's, it's a much more, um, how can I say this, it's, it's quicker, <laughs> you know, it's a quicker thing to do, uh, poetry, but it, uh, fiction has uh, altogether different rewards. And so it takes longer, but you're immersed in a world when you're immersed in in fiction. And so that I'm not sure I I can elucidate the differences between the two. But for me, that that helps, mm-hmm. you know, that helps to show these are some of the things uh, I feel like I'm the kind of person who 
I'm not happy with just one form, you know, poetry, fiction, essays. There's so much that um, helps us to think about the world. Mm -hmm. From so many different dimensions. So it's shifting angles to, I guess, the sort of professional and technical. I was wondering, uh, what have you sort of noticed as the shifts in the landscape of Canadian literature, be it regard to literature generally or poetry or within fiction? And what particularly excites you in the field right now? There's been uh, um, such a change, such upheaval that's, that's taken place. And this is all to the good. This also means that the voices we have heard, those privileged voices, mine included, um, that is to say that, you know, I come from a place of privilege. We are now seeing um, voices from all over the place and from all kinds of backgrounds that are now part of the conversation and should be part of the conversation. And that is such an enrichment to literature. So um, I can't help but feel excited for what's happening in the world, you know, mm -hmm. the ways in which voices are being discovered and included. Yeah, it seems like we're really at a moment where at least there's becoming increased recognition, say, of like uh, all the wonderful Indigenous writers that exist in Canada and like all yeah. the different genres they're working in. Like, of course, like there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of lifting those voices up, but at least like yeah. it seems like there's more work being done. I think that um, at the UBC English Department, uh, one of the faculty members, Daniel Heath Justice, has just written a book, I think, called like Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, which is addressing that in part. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we need. Um, we really need to hear from Indigenous writers um, across the board. And but it's uh, this is true, you know, not just in Canada, but what we're seeing globally, too, is the, the voices that are now hopefully going to be published and the ones who are already starting to get published. So that's a that's a great trend that we're seeing. Uh, do you have any. Um, practical advice for writers who are trying to get published like what is have you noticed that like say doing a formal MFA program makes a difference do people have to look for agents how does one select journals to submit to do you have any thoughts on that well I think that finding the journals that are uh, that speak to you um, th that's the first place to start for people who are writing. Um, there are, of course, when we're writing um, poetry, you don't need an agent. But, but if you're writing fiction, you do still. I think a lot of this will change. I think a lot of this, uh, the old style way of publishing, you had to have an agent to get published. I think it may be changing. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 10 years we see radical change. Um, uh, and so people might not have to be represented by agents. But for now, yeah, those who are writing fiction probably do need to be represented by, by an agent. You know, publishers are very open to new voices. If a voice has not been heard before, uh, a publisher might be much more keen to, say, publish a debut novel, whereas somebody who's published and they know the track record, and, you know, that person will have had to have made a mark to continue to be published, mm. uh, whereas the, the newer voices, emerging voices, they're really looking at emerging voices very closely. And the other thing is that in independent publishers are the bravest, I would say. 
Um, the big publishers will always be looking for interesting, exciting new voices. But I do think that in, in Canada anyway, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is true of the States and of the UK and, you know, wherever you're publishing in the world, the smaller independent publishers really take risks and they take good risks. So I'm heartened by that. So since we're nearing the end of the interview, I was actually going to shift gears entirely to something that um, Anne and I share, which I think is also be fun to talk about, which is fitness. <laughs> which, um, I was so impressed when I got to know Anne here that I think like you mentioned that you had just done an Ironman or you're going to be preparing for a marathon, a half marathon. And I was wondering if you could talk about like, how did you get into what some people sort of see as being like more ex extreme fitness? Or for me, at least it seems extreme because like I've never done any of those things. So incredibly impressive to me. Uh, what drew you to them or what continues to draw, um, draw you to this work of, of being strong um, when, well, I guess we're so still struggling, especially as, as women in the society to, to see certain types of physical activities as being acceptable and sort of perhaps going against the grain of, fitness is just being, you know, something that's like this, like sexy thing for people in their early 20s to be post themselves on Instagram. Well, you're you're so right. I mean, uh, I'm so much older than you are. And uh, I actually um, was was fairly fit. You know, I sort of thought of myself as being fairly fit for a long time. And then I realized that um, I, I wasn't all that fit. Um, I was okay. And I thought, I really want to get strong, mm. like truly strong. And I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> um, I got someone to help me. And she started me off. And then I kind of kept going and, and learned a whole lot about weight. So I never really um, understood what to do with weights or what to do in what they call the pit you know, where all the guys hang out and you think, oh, should I lift that? Or is it too heavy for me? Or, and, uh, and in fact, um, I, so I work out with somebody who's, um, she would be about 15 years younger than I am. And we worked about to the same capacity. So I might be a little bit stronger in terms of bench press. She's, um, we're about the same in uh, deadlifts. And we're uh, about the same in squats. So uh, we continue to do those in lots of other weights. Um, and, and then I run a lot, um, but I'm not very fast. I'm really slow. It's just really too, <laughs> like I can see it coming down the road. I think I've got to stay out of the nursing home. And so how am I going to do that? <laughs> I'm going to stay fit. Um, that was really my... Um, uh, that was the impetus for trying to get strong. Actually, that that was it. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about any personal records you're particularly proud of with lifting or with um, marathons? Uh, well, I don't. In my twenties, I I wasn't a bad marathoner. Now I just do half marathons, and I'm happy if I get through mm -hmm. to the end. Um, and I think I did one there in, in Vancouver and wasn't all that happy with the time. Oh. But I think it's more a case of just doing it, you know. Um, but the uh, deadlifts, we did get up to close to 300 pounds. Oh, wow. We were, we were shy <laughs> of that. Like, we didn't actually do 300 pounds, but we got pretty close. Both my friend and I um, were able to do that. And, 
And so it really gives you a great feeling because you think I can do one lift that is really a lot of weight and I can do that at my age. And that means that there are so many people out there who are still healthy and, you know, relatively young and, and they could do that too. You know, we have so many limitations that we place on ourselves, especially when we're aging. And so we think, well, I, I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't, um, I couldn't lift weight over my head, you know? Uh, so there's a, a lot of that kind of inner talk, I think. And, uh, just doing it broke me out of that um, inner talk and uh, made me realize that actually I could do it. And then it opens doors for a lot of other things. You think, oh, well, I could do this too. And when you think you can't. Mm-hmm. So it's quite fantastic psychologically, I think. I totally agree. Like for me, when I finally was able to both squat and deadlift like more than my body weight, it was just psychologically, as you say, like very very liberating and very empowering because it's almost like this sort of way that you seem to be able to exceed yourself in ways that you didn't expect in such a, a quantitative way. Um, I think that's it. I really do. I think that uh, we do, we have had limits placed on us as women. And this is a way of um, showing ourselves, demonstrating to ourselves that in fact, we needn't be limited by by whatever society has said. It's not like, you know, we're going to go out there and <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go out there and go into a powerlifting competition or anything like that. But but it does make you see that there's much more that you can do that you didn't think you could. Yeah, now we're on opposite coast once again. We're over the Pacific. Anne is over by the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Anne, for joining me today. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us for yet another episode. Please uh, rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Facebook, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for supporting us. Take care.